For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be discussing the lightsaber and how it's the literal best thing that has ever been. Hi, I'm Rob Hired of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars, the movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Each episode will take a topic and apply it across whatever Star Wars media seems most appropriate. So, lightsabers. Would Star Wars have been a huge hit without them? Maybe, but not as huge, surely. Thundar the Barbarian would certainly not have wielded his fabulous sun sword if the lightsaber hadn't come first, anyway. And now I want to rewatch that cartoon, which I haven't seen since I was six, and podcast about that. Anyway, lightsabers are obviously a huge cultural touchstone and one of the most recognizable symbols of the franchise. Perhaps my favorite thing about them is the sounds, created by sound designer and national treasure Ben Burt. The main sound is a combination of an old-fashioned projector that Bert had worked with in college and a microphone picking up static. So you could say that the sound of the lightsaber, arguably the most iconic symbol of the most iconic movie franchise in history, is the sound of movies itself, you guys. Thoughts like this are what keep me warm at night. So conceptually, the lightsaber obviously owes a debt to the magic sword, Excalibur and Glamdring and all the rest. And I was thinking about how the idea of the magic sword presumably comes from a time when everything was made by hand, so there was much more variation in quality between instances of a thing. You and your neighbor might both have tools made by Fred the blacksmith, but maybe Fred was working with subpar ore on the day he made yours, and maybe his attention wandered while he was hammering, and that's why yours broke after a month and your neighbor's is still in great shape five years later. We can barely imagine this in our mass-produced world, but the idea of finding the actual best sword must have seemed much more real in the distant past. But the Excalibur connection is real, in the sense that lightsabers, as originally presented to us, are weapons that can only be used by certain special magical people. When we see Han borrow Luke's saber and the Empire Strikes Back, he's clearly uncomfortable, and I get the idea he just barely managed to avoid lopping bits of himself off as he opens up that tauntaun. That's why it's so interesting to me that in The Force Awakens, Finn, when he asks for a weapon, needs to be reminded that he's already holding one, the very lightsaber that Han had such trouble with, in fact, and then he runs out and is actually fairly competent with the thing. Maybe the First Order just spends a lot more time training stormtroopers in melee combat, and Han never learned it. But I assumed for a good while that Finn would be revealed to be Force-sensitive at some point, though since The Last Jedi I've abandoned that idea since it didn't get foreshadowed any further. So it seems like in the Disney era we're seeing more non-Jedi melee combat, with Finn, Phasma, Kira, and Jin Erso all having pretty elaborate close-up fight scenes. We also have the interesting case of Sabine Wren from Rebels, whose relationship with a particular saber is both more and less like Excalibur than the standard lightsaber. Sabine is the inheritor of a weapon called the Darksaber, which is mostly what it sounds like, a lightsaber whose blade is all black. It's a unique weapon, created around a thousand years ago, and a rallying point for Sabine's Mandalorian people. So in this case, Sabine is not one of the magical people who normally gets to use a lightsaber, but she is an actual queen receiving an inherited magic sword because of her bloodline. Sabine, however, is not the only character whose lightsaber and identity are closely tied to one another. My personal favorite example of saber-informing character is Kylo Ren, whose blade is this barely-contained fountain of energy trying to escape confinement at every turn. Hell, his lightsaber apparently burns so hot that it has to have little auxiliary blades just to let it all out. And doesn't that just sum up Kylo perfectly? Famously, Mace Windu has a purple lightsaber because Samuel Jackson asked Lucas if he could, but secondary sources have naturally backfilled that story with the idea that Windu harnesses the dark side to an unusual degree, having invented a lightsaber form to take advantage of his natural aggression, 
so that goes nicely with a blade that's right in between Jedi Blue and Sith Red. Darth Vader's lightsaber was actually the main topic of the, in the first arc of Charles Soule's recently concluded comic, Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith. As Soule says, this comic begins one second after the end of Revenge of the Sith, and it deals with Vader adjusting to his new life as a cyborg and monster. The first arc sees him making himself a new lightsaber, but introduces the concept of bleeding a lightsaber crystal. As Palpatine explains, the Sith use red lightsabers because they have bled their crystals, or focused all their pain and rage and hatred into the crystal until it becomes an extension of their dark side powers. Palpatine, of course, has a ton of lightsabers available after Order 66, but he tells Vader that he cannot be given a new kyber crystal, he has to take one from a Jedi. So Vader goes on this quest to find a Jedi that was far enough away from galactic affairs to have been missed by the Purge, and he has a big climactic showdown with this Jedi, sustaining heavy damage to his armor and having to replace some parts with bits of a droid that had been loyal to the Jedi. Then we see him bleeding his new crystal, but at first the light side within the crystal seems to overwhelm him, and he has a fantasy-slash-dream sequence where he goes back to the Emperor with a still green lightsaber and cuts him down. Eventually, he manages to focus on unhappy enough thoughts, mostly about having killed Padme, to turn the crystal red. The Emperor also encourages him to rebuild his armor as he sees fit, since he is a skilled engineer and all. But what strikes me about this particular story of a magic sword is how, even in this story of Darth Vader, magical badass, we see hints of the buried light side shine through. Vader only succeeds at killing his Jedi enemy by incorporating actual body parts from a droid that is shown as a true believer in the Jedi cause. His first thought when he gets his new crystal is maybe just be a good guy and rid the galaxy of the Emperor. And obviously it's significant that the last part of the story is Palpatine telling Vader to rebuild himself however he wants. Darth Vader, like his lightsaber, is not a creation of the Emperor on the dark side, but the creation of the Jedi Order stained by the dark side. But not permanently so. My other favorite lightsaber that establishes a character beat is Count Dooku's, which has a distinctive curve to the handle and a pokey bit that sticks out around the blade. It just has this lovely old-fashioned Baroque feel, and it goes so well with Christopher Lee as Gentleman Villain. And speaking of Count Dooku, let's talk a bit about the climax of Attack of the Clones, specifically when Yoda shows up. Dooku throws some stuff at him, shoots some lightning, which he has no trouble absorbing and redirecting, which is cool and everything. And then Dooku says, It is obvious that this contest cannot be decided by our knowledge of the Force, but by our skills with a lightsaber. And they do the big duel. I've always found this line weird and troubling, though, because it seems to suggest that lightsabers are simply the most powerful and effective element in the Jedi-slash-Sith arsenal, and that doesn't really sit well with me. I guess, in all fairness, this is a Sith talking, and yet it would probably say something different, probably involving the words knowledge and defense. Maybe the real reason it bugs me is that it clearly puts swords before sorcery, i.e. jocks before nerds, and that's just not how I roll. I want magic, and I want it to be big and flashy and important magic. The wizard's duel portion of this fight is a little weak sauce, and the sword fight part is hard to experience viscerally, since Yoda is bouncing around like a Super Bowl with ADHD. Of course, the fight ends with Dooku heading back to Wizard's Duel Land, knocking over a heavy thing onto Obi-Wan and Anakin that Yoda then has to catch with magic, so maybe it's all okay in the end. On a different topic, here's a fun fact for you. There's a lot of disagreement in the fan community about whether or not Lucas had originally intended for Vader to be Luke's father, but there's a hint buried in the lightsaber props of the very first movie. I've got links to images in the show notes, and if you compare Luke's lightsaber that he inherited from his father to the one that Darth Vader carries, they're all but identical. And before you say lightsaber handles all look basically the same, take a look at Obi-Wan's saber, which looks very different from both of the other two. 
So the implication seems pretty clear that this design, the one Luke and Vader both carry, is how Anakin Skywalker builds lightsabers. And isn't that a wild coincidence if it wasn't planned out? As a final note, the saber that Luke builds for himself for Return of the Jedi looks very similar to the Obi-Wan design, supporting the idea that Luke visited Ben's hut while he was on Tatooine and found some plans or instructions or something. Another thing that's either a wild coincidence or doesn't really make any sense is that the second episode of each trilogy thus far involves a hero losing his or her lightsaber. Empire Strikes Back features Luke losing his saber and hand in his duel with Vader. The Last Jedi has Rey accidentally blowing up her saber while cosmically arm-wrestling over it with Kylo Ren. An Attack of the Clones actually makes a running joke about Anakin losing his sword a few times, though it finally gets chopped in half in the droid factory on Geonosis, and he has to make do with a loner for the end of the movie. I was briefly excited in recapping that to think that it's all Anakin's lightsaber getting lost every single time, since Luke and Rey both inherited that same sword from him, but somewhat ironically, Anakin breaks that combo because the saber he's using in Attack of the Clones gets destroyed before he can pass it on to anybody. So what does it mean that we have this repeated beat of losing your saber in the second part of each trilogy? The straightforward answer is that middle acts, especially Star Wars middle acts, are where we complicate the hero's life and throw obstacles in their way. And there's certainly some of that happening here. And if you're going to try to take something away from a Jedi character, there are frankly not that many options, since they seem to be largely ascetic. But let's look closer. Both Anakin and Luke lose their sabers around the same time they lose their right hands, making these losses more potent symbols. They also suffer these losses just before they can be considered full Jedi Knights. Note also that the traditional promotion from Padawan to knighthood involves severing the Padawan braid, as we saw with Obi-Wan and Anakin in their turns. Now, if you combine these sorts of images of sacrifice and loss with the fact that the Jedi are traditionally a celibate order, I start to wonder if losing your lightsaber before you can be a Jedi Knight is a symbolic castration. I may have lost some of you there, so let's go step by step. Okay, sword equals penis is pretty straightforward, right? We all agree on that one. Maybe even in a kid's space wizard movie? If nothing else, the history of anime and video games shows us that swords are penises all the time. Oh, and the word vagina is Latin for sheath, so there's definitely a long history of this particular symbol-slash-dirty joke. We also know that one of the things that separates a Padawan from knighthood is some kind of trial. It's mentioned with respect to Obi-Wan and the Phantom Menace, and apparently defeating Darth Maul counted as his. Luke's final encounter with Vader apparently counts as his trial, since Yoda tells him on his deathbed that he's an all-but-Darth candidate for Jedi. Anakin's ascension to knighthood is murkier, but it seems like his first fight with Count Dooku may have been his trial. Anyway, here are things we know for sure about the Jedi Order. You're supposed to avoid attachment, including romantic attachments. We also know that promotion to knighthood does involve a literal severing in the form of that little rat tail of braid that Padawans have to wear. So symbolically speaking, a castration in order to join the ranks of the Jedi feels pretty on brand. Now, Rey, obviously, is a special case. She gets to avoid any kind of mortification of the flesh, or even hair, in her journey through the Force, and I don't think it's because she likely doesn't have a penis to lose. One of the important messages of The Last Jedi, it seems to me, is that the old Jedi Order was deeply flawed, and that Rey is going to be the first of a new breed of Jedi who are less dependent on blind obedience to weird old traditions. We'll see how right or wrong I am in December when Episode Nine finally hits and it's so close and squee! And that's my wrap about lightsabers. But that's just the start of the conversation. If you want to discuss anything I've said here, talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or come to the Chippers forums if you'd like to have a conversation outside of 280 character limits. If you'd like to support my work and the other great podcasts here at Chipperish, head to our Patreon page and chip in a dollar a month or whatever you can afford. You can also support any podcast you love by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you. Mm-hmm.